Hello and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series about what historians, and in this episode anyway, political scientists do with their lives. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today is September 17th, which is Constitution Day in the United States, when Americans remember and celebrate the final signing of the U.S. Constitution on this day in 1787. 39 representatives, including George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, and Governor Morris, signed the document in the Assembly Room of the Pennsylvania State House after nearly four months of debates, arguments, negotiations, compromises, and a whole lot of sweat. The story of the Constitution didn't end on September 17, 1787, of course, because each state had to then ratify the document, which meant more rounds of debate. The Federalist supporters of the document duked it out with anti-Federalist opponents in the newspapers and on the stump throughout the country. And then there was the formation and evolution of the Bill of Rights, which was intended to address some of the opponents' complaints while maintaining the spirit of the original document. It was a long, arduous process, but hopefully we can all agree that it was worth the trouble. Over the past few years, we have celebrated Constitution Day on this podcast. In 2017, Patrick Calloway discussed the origins of the Constitution and the debates over ratification. In 2018, Karen Webb discussed the political ideas that influenced the transition from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitution. Last year, I spoke to three scholars who specialize in constitutional issues. Chris Klein talked about the threat of the Whiskey Rebellion to the new federal government and how it influenced the interpretation of the Constitution. Bob Irvine talked about Native American sovereignty within the constitutional framework. And Jeff Zarnick talked about the constant presence of constitutional thinking in everyday police work. This year, we have assembled a roundtable with five scholars, three historians, and two political scientists. During this conversation, we will hear from Michael Gaddis, Harley Hall, Rob Mellon, Jeremy Pettigo, and Bridget Powell, who will collectively talk about the origins of the Constitution, important concepts such as separation of powers and the Fourth Amendment, the limits on presidential powers, and a few other important concepts that exist outside of the Constitution, such as the filibuster in the U.S. Senate and qualified immunity. Finally, we will end with a discussion of whether the Constitution will survive the turmoil of 2020, what with an economic crisis, disease epidemic, racial tensions, increased political partisanship, a contentious presidential election, and whatever other calamities befall us before the end of the year. So let's get to it. Hello, everybody. Uh, first, before we get started here, we're going to go around the table, so to speak, the virtual table here, and everybody's going to introduce themselves. First off, I am Rob Denning. I am the Associate Dean of Liberal Arts at Southern New Hampshire University, uh, the global campus where I oversee the undergrad and graduate history programs. So, Bridget, how about you introduce yourself? Yes, sure. Hello, I'm Bridget Powell, and thank you all for tuning in to this podcast. Um, I serve as adjunct faculty of, in history and humanities and general education area here at Southern New Hampshire University. I've been part of the university since 2012 and hold a doctorate in education and soon to be a second doctorate in history. Excellent. Thanks, Bridget. Uh, Harley, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? 
Uh, yeah, thanks, Rob. Uh, my name is Harley Hall. I am also an adjunct faculty at uh, Southern New Hampshire University. I'm fairly new to the adjunct world, to the history profession. I've been teaching for a couple of years, but uh, I just finished my master's degree in U.S. history a couple of years ago at Norwich University. And uh, prior to becoming uh, prior to becoming the, into the history field, I was a law enforcement officer for 18 years. Oh, great. Jeremy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm Jeremy Pettigo. I'm an adjunct political science professor at SNHU. I've been here for seven years. I also teach full-time uh, government professor at a junior college here in Houston, Texas. So uh, thank you, Rob, everyone else. I'm looking forward to a lively discussion on these important topics related to Constitution Day. Thank you. Yes, I'm looking forward to it also. Michael, can you tell us about yourself? Yes, I'm Michael Gaddis. I have been at SNU for three years now. I teach history as an adjunct. I also teach at a junior college in Alabama. I currently have a master's degree in history with initial 18 graduate hours in political science, and I'm currently working on my doctorate in humanities with a concentration in history. Excellent. And last but not least, we've got Rob. Can you tell us about yourself? Yes, thanks, Rob. Uh, I've been with uh... Southern New Hampshire University as an adjunct professor of political science since 2014. Uh, I've also taught at Mississippi State University for nine years, as well as currently teaching for a local uh, community college in political science as well as a doctorate from Washington State University in political science. Okay, so we've got a great collection of historians and political scientists here, so this should be an interesting conversation. So let's get to it. Uh, I think we're going to start today with uh, Bridget uh, Powell, who specializes in the separation of powers uh, in Congress. And so just to get us started here, the, the, the framers of the Constitution were obviously concerned with having each branch of the federal government serve as a check on each other and a balance on each other. So how did they convince themselves that such a system would, would work? And how has that played out to the, up to the present day? Yeah, Rob, this is a really good question. And uh, I'd like to kind of bring us up a little bit on uh, the timetable, um, you know, coming in to how the Constitutional Convention actually did come into being. I think it's critical to understand uh, how it all started. Um, and when we look at the Constitutional Convention, it was really nothing short of a brilliant solution. And nothing like this had ever been done before. And really, when you're looking at the framework of the United States Constitution, it's, a, it's an incredible document. It is um, unprecedented. But there's also bits and pieces in there that where the ideas came from uh, classical uh, and the, the classical ancient world, so to speak. So as Madison begins to send out letters, um, to the different states, he is thinking that we are going to hold a meeting to repair the government system known as the Articles of Confederation that the United States was operating under. But he had begun to show some gaps and weaknesses and not as workable once the Revolutionary War had ended. So James Madison is lying over during the winter in Philadelphia, and he does not know if anyone is going to respond or even show up. 
The diaries of Madison show us that he worked, uh, he, he woke up on Sunday, May the 13th, 1787, because he hears gunfire and cannon salutes. He hears much commotion and from, he hears cheers and chimes in the street. Madison realizes very quickly that only one American could bring that type of jubilee in the street. General George Washington had arrived and now it was just a matter of time for all other delegates to come on in. And I mean, you know, you can you can almost sense Madison's, uh, you know, almost like a nervousness in the air until he finally flings open those shutters and the windows in the tavern where he's staying, looking down Philadelphia Street, the main strip there in Philadelphia, and sees this white horse and this very familiar individual riding in, uh, you know, and, and it must have... For Madison, it must have felt like a real stress reducer at that point in time because everybody was faced with, you know, bringing the nation under a workable government. And, you know, and this is very, very critical to the convention. So to that, it's essential to understand who the 55 delegates were that would draft the Constitution. It, I think it's also important to know that Thomas Jefferson was not present. He was in France. John Adams was in England on business during this time, but corresponded. Um, to the convention comes a group of pretty much, uh, you know, reasonably self-selected men, men of ability, weight, and experience who were landowners. They were lawyers. They were merchants. They were land and security speculators. A few doctors and clergymen. So we had a good representation at the Constitutional Convention uh, from, from this group of men. So one of the most interesting parts of constitutional history and history is to trace where the ideas came from that were introduced and adopted into the various parts of the Constitution. Um, I mean, there had been a widespread concern during the American Revolution in general at large and, and through the time that we authored the Declaration of Independence, rather Thomas Jefferson authors the Declaration of Independence, and, and we bring America into these United Sovereign States, you know, under the Declaration of Independence, that government should not be run by an almighty monarch or autocrat or even an autocracy, if you will, that would limit American liberty and freedoms. So this, you know, this, you know, had taken place under King George III and, of course, sparked the war for independence. And one of the critical dynamics, I think, looking and reflecting over the crafting of the Constitution was, you know, the idea of incorporating a check and balance system with shared power. So the idea of separation of power was nothing new. It had been around since the classical era of Greece and Rome. Um, the ideas had proven successful since that time in ancient history. And the concept of check and balance uh, within a framework of government being divided into branches can be seen. We can travel back into the Athenian democracy. We can take and dissect the ideas from Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero. We can look at the assembly. We can look at the Athenian consul of the 500 and the court systems.
We can come up on the historical timetable. We can look at the Roman Republic, where we see the Senate, the consuls, and the assemblies, and how they worked in a check and balance framework. We can even travel up in time to Alfred the Great, the Norman Conquest, look at the Anglo-Saxon and the, how the British system of government evolved, particularly from the time of 1215 with the Magna Carta that placed all men equal under the law. And from there, we see that even Great Britain began to reshape its, its government with the monarchy, the parliament, the governors, and, and delegate authority all the way down to the shires, so we know it as counties. Um, some of the framers, specifically those who held law degrees, uh, had learned from the ideas of John Locke and Baron von Montesquieu. Uh, Locke and Montesquieu were well-learned in the classical age of democracy and had continued to sort of develop those ideas of government. John Locke wrote uh, a literary work that, it, that we, uh, as historians, many times fall back on as a pretty much a primary source document, two treaties on civil government. So John Locke argues in his work that government should be by the people and for the people, that government work best under a form of representation and limitation of power, uh, resulting sort of in a changing out of elective officials as we see it today. Now, Montesquieu wrote Spirit of, of the Laws, where he advocated uh, that government would self-corrupt without implementa an implementation of a check and balance of power. He further advocated that, you know, the Separate for separate branches of government, sharing separate powers, but yet equal through a check and balance system that each government branch holds on the other branch, resulting in sort of a uh, perpetual self-governing system that could last from generation to generation. So the framers would draw upon and incorporate these ideas. We see how critical these ideas are in the makeup of the very core of how the United States government would come to work, resulting in one supreme law, the United States Constitution, that outlines the powers and responsibility of each branch, executive, legislative, and judiciary branches. Also, we see the relationship between and the checks and balances on a central government, the federal government, the centralized government, in relationship to its state governments. And we can see that how this operates in a comprehensive framework within this check and balance system to safeguard the government from internal threats. That was Montesquieu's very uh, thesis of his authorship, to self-destruct or even corrupt. There are even guardrails implemented as check and balances throughout the document that protects government under external threats and how to mobilize under external threats and circumstances. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to comment on something you said. I thought that was a very important point about the sharing of powers. Uh, the late historian Richard Neustadt wrote that rather than thinking of our system as one of separated powers, which is the way our textbooks often teach uh, American government to our students, that we should think of the government as a system of separated institutions that actually share powers. 
and you've illustrated some of that with um, talking about the powers that they share. For example, the executive doesn't have total control over any aspect, like the military. He, he is completely dependent upon Congress for the declaration of war, for the raising of an army, etc. Those kinds of things. I thought that was an important point to bring up. Absolutely. And why is this so, imp I mean, part of why this is so important is that so that government should always uphold the liberty and freedoms of we the people. And, and you know, that is the opening statement of the entire Constitution. We the people do ordain this Constitution. So in this, we do see that the, the Constitution was a test. Nothing like this had ever, it was unprecedented. Nothing like this had ever happened before, and there were no guarantees that the Constitution was going to prove to be this, or be a workable government at all. And I think, you know, Benjamin Franklin was asked at one time, at one point, if the new Constitution government uh, system could work, and his answer was, only if you can keep it. So there was a sense of confidence that the that the document was workable in theory, but only as good as people's ability to abide by the rule, like the outline of the document. By taking, I think, the best ideas from the classical era, and of course Great Britain, and sort of bundle this in, there was a consensus to at least try it out. After all, the best parts that had worked in history passed in the past, then in theory should ought and ought to work now. The only difference is that the framers improved upon the original ideas. And I think it is very, it's, it's like really where we see the American character at its best. Um, you know, jumping up to present day and probably like sort of, um, you know, coming into modern era, I'm finding that there is a severe lack of understanding of the inner working of the Constitution, of the core of the check and balances, uh, you know, and history at large in our nation. Uh, you know, a couple of events that I reflect back over and shows and examples, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, the stimulus checks, even riots in our nation, you know, and I think it's important and critical as citizens of the United States of America um, for us to take a step back and ask ourselves, what branch of government is responsible for what parts of events that are taking place? I think the second question we have to ask ourselves, if, if a branch of government sort of holds back, back on their power to execute a responsibility, and maybe not even a fulfilling an obligation, why is that? And a third question, is there another branch that can step in under the check and balance? If so, within the framework of the Constitution, what can be done? You know, and so if historical lessons are removed out of society, let's say curriculum, education, and even daily life at large, citizens are deprived of not only understanding the liberties and freedoms and rights, but also the very governing principles and values that this great nation was founded on. Say, like Jeremy has a question. Yeah, I was just going to share uh, really the impact. Uh, thank you, Bridget, by the way. Just the impact of the bureaucracy. I, mean, I think one of the things that the, the framers didn't entail or really envision is how large the bureaucracy be. And 
for someone like myself, I spent 20 years working in county government. And so just with the power of bureaucrats um, that they have, because persons like myself and uh, the executive director I worked under here in Harris County, Houston, we had a lot of authority and a lot of power, but yeah, we're not elected people. And that, yes, our authority came from the Texas legislature. It came from the local government here in Harris County, but there's, we have, there's so much power that we have creating departments. I co-founded a department, writing new rules and regulations and policies that, you know, and we definitely do preach that it's important to vote. Of course, voting is important, you know, elect our representatives. But I think there's a false sense out there that somehow all of our legislatures and our chief executives have, have all the power. When, if you look at everyday services that are provided by the government, those are things that are really outside the scope of those elected officials. Anyways, I just want to share that point. And of course, the separation of powers has really been in the news, of course, over the last year, probably. I mean, it's been in the news, I guess, forever, but it feels like it's kind of become more important in the last year, especially when you get to things like the impeachment uh, back in December. Uh, and so how do we see the development or how how has this separation of powers played out on the ground? Because uh, from the perspective of you know, especially President Donald Trump's political opponents, it looks like there is no checks and balances because his party is in charge of Congress. But at the same time, there, you can make the argument that, you know, if one, if the branch of Congress, like the Senate, is, you know, of the same political party, then you wouldn't expect them to prosecute a president. So how can we kind of reconcile our modern political system or our political reality with the ideals of the checks and balances that the founding fathers were trying to put together. I, I'll toss that out to anybody. Yes, I will make a comment on Rich's excellent introduction. And in regards to a historical perspective about the Constitution, one of the things I've always been so intrigued by is that so many people look upon the creation of the Constitution and our checks and balances as this this efficient form of government when it is anything but efficient. It's very inefficient, but it is inefficient by design. The checks and balances is structured in a way to be safe, not to be an effective form of government, not to be a very effective form of, of national government. And I think as more more of this technology and people have come to expect more from government, you know, the bureaucracy and all of the checks and balances, people are used to instantaneous results. And when those instantaneous results are not forthcoming, they, of course, are going to look to blame the government. And it is intriguing that you do see this engagement by a lot of people to say, well, if we start to remove some of these you know, checks and balances, we would have a faster, speedier, more functioning government. I could build on the point that he was making about the Constitution creating an inefficient government, and I think it goes back to one of the questions you asked at the beginning of this conversation about the elimination of the filibuster and what that's going to do to the Senate. And uh, I think that's that's one of the reasons why people are concerned with that is that it would it would create a more efficient government, so to speak. But I think what they're really looking at is, is the debate over responsible party government and getting back to like a parliamentary type system, because that's effectively what would happen is you'd end up with a parliamentary system that 
allows legislation to move through as long as one party controls all branches of the government, or at least the uh, Congress and the presidency. And so that would happen because the minority power would have less control over the legislation that's going through the Senate because they wouldn't be able to put a stop exactly. on it. Exactly. Uh, because... Uh, actually, let's go over to um, Rob. Let's go over to your topic here. So, I know that you're interested in the uh, the, the limitations on presidential power, uh, especially in the Constitution and so forth. Obviously, that's kind of another hot topic in American politics today. But let's let's look at it a little bit from a historical <laughs> perspective. And so, um, the uh, what what types of limits did the Congress, or I'm sorry, what type of limits did the Constitution put on this? this presidential figure and, you know, how have those limits changed over time? Well, that's a good question, Rob, and uh, thank you for that. Uh, I think that, that one of the ways we, we need to look at that is we can go back to the original Constitution. We can look at the way that presidential appointments are to be handled. A uh, president can fill vacancies of all federal officers other than those that are stated elsewhere in the Constitution, but uh, generally speaking, judges, ministers, that type of thing, presidents appoint their cabinet members, they're confirmed by the Senate. And that's one of the limitations that's placed on on presidential power. They wanted to make sure that a president wasn't like the King of England, and that's how Hamilton compares him in Federalist Papers 67 through 77, and talking about uh, how these limits work. Uh, other limits that are placed. Presidents have to be elected. They're, they don't get to just govern and serve at their pleasure. They serve at the pleasure of the American people. And so they have to face the electorate every four years, as our current president's going to do in about two months. And we're going to render a verdict on whether we want to keep him or whether we want to replace him with someone else. And that's one of the limits placed on presidential power. Uh, another is that uh, they provided the Congress with the power to impeach and remove a president for violating the laws for high crimes and misdemeanors, treason, bribery, other things like that. As well as once that individual is removed from office, it's never happened and may never happen because partisanship tends to take over in that process uh, oftentimes, but the person is subject to prosecution under the law. So the president is not above the law. That's another limitation. Uh, we can get into some presidents like Nixon saying, well, the president does it, it's not illegal. But uh, that's not that was not the view of the uh, founding fathers and framers uh, back in 1787. When it comes to the military, we can look at limitations that were placed on the president as commander in chief. Congress has to declare war. Congress has to raise an army and a navy. This is not something that the president can do. He's given only direction of those uh, of those bodies. Treaty powers. President can negotiate treaties, but he cannot implement anything without approval of two-thirds of the Senate. So all along the way, we see that limitations are placed on presidential power. Now, the second half of your question is, how has that changed over time and why? Well, there's a few different theories that presidents use to, to discuss how they understand the Constitution, because there's a lot of ambiguity in Article Two of the Constitution when it comes to presidential power. 
the primary theories of presidential power tend to be either the stewardship theory advocated by Theodore Roosevelt or the constitutional uh, theory advocated by his successor and good friend, William Howard Taft. And that is, with Roosevelt, presidents can do whatever's in the best interest of the nation as long as there's nothing in the Constitution that expressly prohibits it. With Taft, it was the other way around. Presidents can only do what is expressly authorized by the Constitution. Then you get this third theory of executive prerogative that we see embodied in certain presidents like Abraham Lincoln, Richard Nixon, and to some degree, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, where they think that their power can be extended. And over time, as they extend those powers, let's say Lincoln, for example, suspending habeas corpus, the Constitution explicitly limits that power to Congress, not to the president. And the court struck back on that in the ex parte v. Merriman case, or ex parte Merriman case. We can look at Nixon and his invocation of executive privilege, and the court strikes back on that and says, no, you've got to turn over those tapes. You're subject to that investigation. We can look at it with Barack Obama and his executive actions protecting uh, aliens who were brought here as children, the DACA and DAPA programs. And the courts have scaled those back to some degree, but protected them as well. We can also look at some of Trump's actions recently. He's passed several executive actions, and none of those have really even been challenged. So presidential power continuously expands by pushing the limits in various places. And then when you don't get that pushback, it becomes a part of accepted presidential power. Lewis Fisher's argued that a lot of this results from Congress abdicating its power and not playing the central role that uh, that the framers had intended it to play. Yeah, the, the Congress abdicating its role, I've, I've uh, I'm heard of, of that argument also. And I've also heard the argument that, and this probably goes, I mean, this is part of the abdication, I suppose, but where Congress... Congress people don't they don't always want to take tough votes and so a lot of times it's really easy to kind of push hard decisions off onto the president because then they don't have to deal with the consequences of the vote um, I don't know how much stock I put in that I can toss that out in the political scientists you guys probably have a better sense of that than I do but uh, of how often that actually happens but uh, the, the just the idea that Congress is pushing is, is abdicating and, and granting more powers to the president, is that a way for them to avoid making the big decisions? Or is that something, or, or is there a, some sort of a greater cause in mind? <laughs> or is it just simply that, you know, self-preservation, they don't want to have that on their record when they go for re-election in a couple of years? Yeah, sometimes that's exactly what it is. It is Congress refusing to take the big steps. There was an article written, I uh, believe it was Howard Gilman, not positive on that one, but it, it was about the Supreme Court. It was about a period in the 1870s to 1890s, and uh, he entitled it, Interpose Your Friendly Hand. And it was basically Congress refusing to act on very contentious issues and inviting the Supreme Court to make those decisions. 
so that members of Congress, when they run, can say, well, you know, we can't do anything about that because the court has already decided. The court has decided on same-sex marriage. The court has decided on abortion. The court has decided. And so they don't have to take those big votes. They don't have to do those big things. Now, that doesn't describe everyone in the Congress, obviously, because there are members of Congress that are that, that are willing to get out there and take those stances. We saw a lot of that during the debate over the Affordable uh, Care Act and the follow-up to that. I lived in Mississippi during that time, so every member, every Republican in the state of Mississippi ran on a platform of repealing the Affordable Care Act, and they had no problem with going out and, and taking that on, even though they were unable to do that and they had no hope of actually being able to do that. Uh, and maybe that gives them some kind of immunity so they can run on those kinds of issues and make promises, and then they can later on point to, well, you know, John Roberts and the court said it was constitutional and you know, so on, so they can they can pass the blame on that. And that uh, it seems to happen quite frequently. Yeah, I tend to hear that argument when it comes to things like abortion. You know, abortion is, is one of those issues that, uh, Republicans and conservatives love to rail against, but if it ever actually was outlawed, there's kind of a, a question about what that would mean politically because they wouldn't have that that you know that that windmill to tilt at or whatever you want to call it. They wouldn't have a target, and so that might disrupt uh, future Republican uh, or conservative campaigning, that kind of thing. And of course, we'd have to see how that plays out. Who knows if it'll actually happen? But uh, I've, I have heard that argument too. With that in mind, with the idea that we've got limitations being put on the pre presidential power because of the separation of powers and all of that, um, I'd like to turn now to uh, Harley uh, to talk a bit about this concept of qualified immunity, which in some ways is, is hard to reconcile sometimes with the idea of limits on power and all of that. And so, Harley, can you talk a little bit about that? What, what, first off, what is qualified immunity and, and you know, where did it come from? Sure. Thanks, Rob. Um, and there's going to be some overlap here. We've I've heard Nixon's name mentioned, and actually one of the cases that impacts the uh, the role of qualified immunity on the modern discussion is a Nixon case. Believe it or not, he keeps keeps the scene popping up in the uh, Supreme Court somehow. Um, and so the qualified immunity is in as plain speak as possible makes it difficult for a citizen to sue uh, in the context of what we hear today, a police officer especially, but really any agent of the state individually for violating their rights. And so with the Constitution in mind, where does this come from? And the, the short answer is that the Constitution doesn't mention qualified immunity. It actually doesn't really get into immunity at all. Um, the concept of sovereign immunity is there, but we're going to stay away from that. Um, and that's something that applies to states and the federal government and so forth. But the variety of the qualified immunity that we see today, uh, especially around discussions of um, police use of force and so forth and so on, um, which is where the context and where the interest stems from, uh, it goes back all the way to an 1871 law, which I think is important because this is a reconstruction law. It's often just called the Third Force Act. That's got a, a Civil Rights Act of 1871, I think is the official title, but it's called the Third Force Act. And it was the third of three acts designed to uh, uh, counter the Redeemer governments who were actively pushing back um, against the, the the newly enabled rights from the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to black citizens within the states. Um, and so it's a Reconstruction law, but it basically says, uh, and I'm going to paraphrase because you know I'm not going to get into the whole vernacular of it, that any person who under the color of law violates 
the constitutional rights of another person shall be liable to the party injured. Um, and so it allows individuals to sue people who uh, violated their rights. Uh, oftentimes, uh, in that time frame, they violated those rights with impunity. So it was one of the things that the, the legislative branch established to um, kind of deter these type of acts. And it went fairly kind of um, unused for a long time. And it, it, when it started getting some attention was in the 60s. Uh, one of the first cases uh, was in 61. It was applied when um, some Chicago police officers uh, violated in any number of rights, fourth, fifth, sixth, uh, eighth, even with some punishments they doled out. Um, and so it allowed those victims to to sue for civil rights violations in a civil in a civil court and not just in a criminal court. Um, where the issue comes in and where we start to see the flip, because this law, by all definitions, makes it easier to sue somebody who violated your uh, constitutional rights. Uh, in 1967, and it's important to note, this is a Warren court case. This is the same court that gave us Miranda. This is the same court case that gives us, or same court that gives us Gideon. So we see an, an expansion of rights uh, or protections uh, under Supreme Court case, but here we're actually going to see a contraction. And one of those is uh, Pearson v. Ray. And it um, some pastors went to the uh, to the South to test the desegregation laws in interstate travel facilities, uh, specifically a bus terminal in, somewhere in Mississippi. Um, I want to say Jackson, but I don't quote me there. And they uh, were arrested, and eventually the case that they were arrested under was uh, thrown out because the case that the police officers used, or the law, I should say, the police officers used to effect the arrest was overturned as unconstitutional. And so they said, well, they did. They followed the good faith standard. The police officers followed a good faith in effecting an arrest. It wasn't necessarily a use of force issue, but they did, you know, make an arrest, put them to jail. They faced trial. And uh, so the court is going to establish kind of a an extra barrier to sue police officers with the good faith. And I think under most circumstances, there's an argument there to be made. That's probably a good thing if a police officer makes an arrest and then the law changes. I mean, you're looking a little bit like a reverse ex post facto situation where you can't fault the police officers for uh, the law that was the law when they're enforcing as far as from the criminal side. But the danger came from 1982. Um, and this was... Um, uh, Harlow case is uh, what I'm talking about. And there was, this was Harlow uh, v. Fitzgerald. This would be the Nixon case. Um, they actually moved the threshold a little bit from a good faith, saying that you could only show, you could only sue a police officer for civil and civil rights and violations if you could show they violated good faith. They're actually going to move the doctrine a little bit, and they're going to put it to clearly established. So this means that a police officer, under the modern context, and we're just going to use use of force. And again, I'm not going to go through all of these situations. I'm sure everybody, you know, here on the panel and everybody listening to this has seen the news. Um, but the clearly established makes it very difficult to find civil recourse through a tort uh, against police officers or uh, cities or anything like that um, after a um, civil rights violation. And this makes it much, much more difficult to do that because now they're going to have the clearly established. So to actually sue a police officer, uh, you have to go to a court. It's almost like a strict liability where you have to show, even just to get in, that you have all of this um, evidence, all of this overwhelming evidence that my case, my violations that I'm alleging occurred, explicitly match this case from Supreme Court or uh, federal court jurisprudence. 
and for it to go forward. Otherwise, it's going to be uh, summarily dismissed under the doctrine of qualified immunity. So the solutions, that's, that's a different question, but qualified immunity is not a constitutional concept. Uh, it was a judicial inaction or judicial action based off of the interpretation of a federal law. So from a constitutional standpoint, a new federal law amending the area that was uh, determined as this way from the Supreme Court could get rid of qualified immunity. And as a matter of fact, there's a uh, both Supreme Court, a uh, House and Senate bills um, within uh, both committee, in both houses, they're stuck in committee dealing with this exact same one. So they're kind of sitting there. Um, and so I thought for listeners wondering, you know, what the heck is qualified immunity when they're listening to the news and when, where it comes from is it's not a constitutional concept. I, I'd argue that the framers would find it uh, somewhat, you know, revolting that it would be more difficult to hold government actors or agents uh, accountable for civil rights violations as opposed to easier. Um, and so I thought this one might be a good way to introduce uh, kind of the discussion and the origination of this concept that's prevalent and pretty much a third rail in American politics. Yeah, thank you for that introduction there. And so it, given our current, you know, we're recording in early September of 2020, and there for months now there have been various protests happening around the country after the, the, the death of George Floyd and a variety of other um, uh, incidents of police, how do we phrase it charitably, interactions with crowds <laughs> that sometimes have had negative uh, repercussions. But in light of all of that, yeah, the topic of qualified immunity has been kind of brought to the surface a bit. And so as a way to push back against police brutality, as you said, there's a lot of movement in Congress and in various state houses to try to roll back um, qualified immunity protections for police officers and for various others. And so you kind of hinted at this a little bit, but where do you see that going? If 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 that does become a reality and there, there do become rules or new laws that are, I don't know, overturning qualified immunity in some way, what do you see as kind of the consequences of that? Well, I think... It the answer to that question would probably be delineated um, on who you asked based on their political viewpoint and maybe their political party affiliation for sure. Um, I think that on one end of the extreme, you will see, most people say you will see a mass exodus of law enforcement officers. And to be honest, you know, in some parts of the country, in the areas where those, I think the phrase you used was enhanced police contact, uh, in some of these cities where you see that, you're already starting to see a, a fairly decent drop off in uh, police officers ending the career field. So, and that's, that's not what the ending of qualified immunity should mean. Um, most of those people are leaving because of the environments with their elected local uh, city councils or town councils or whatever who are not, um, are not standing by them and telling them to stand down kind of thing. Um, I, I envision pretty much what you see with other professions who are high risk and high liability. Um, I think something you, most of us have probably heard is the idea of having malpractice insurance. For lack of a better word, everybody knows what a malpractice insurance is for doctors where they carry their own professional liability insurance um, because they are not shielded from qualified immunity. Um, and so I could see something like that taking shape. The issue with, quali with qualified immunity is that there's no, you know, pecuniary punishment, not to be alliterative too much here, for uh, agencies that um, 
that continually hire bad cops, and there are there there are agencies that do that. Um, and so this kind of takes that off the table, and without vilifying the profession as a whole. I mean, I spent 18 years in law enforcement. Ten of it as a civilian in, in Central Florida, and I can tell you that uh, I've never seen a cop do anything that I would question as uh, unconstitutional. So I think the the fear that it would just be nobody joining, I don't think so. I, I think once we have some adjustment and, you know, we have something like private insurance to cover this type of malpractice, um, I think if you're a bad cop, so to speak, for lack of, you know, a better expression, or you're a cop that continually gets sued, uh, you become a liability and insurance companies aren't going to carry that liability. And then, you know, from there on, uh, it might be harder for you to find uh, some type of employment. And so I think that's probably the best case scenario is that it, it does do help with a lot of those as far as um, as far as thinning out some 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 poor actors in the field. So in some ways that would also help to address the issue that has developed where, you know, if a police officer gets fired for misconduct from one uh, jurisdiction, a lot oftentimes they can find another job fairly quickly at another jurisdiction. And so something like that would be a way to limit that because the insurance companies, they're probably going to track that stuff <laughs> much more strictly than any other watchdog organization would because they've got a, a financial interest in all of that. Right, absolutely. It's the same. It would be like for that that type of view. If you left, um, if we left New Hampshire and I went back to Florida, the insurance company is going to know my driving record in New Hampshire, and so they're they're liable to you know in, inflict harm upon me if I have a poor driving record. And I, this isn't a this isn't a cure all. I, I don't know how this will play out. And of course, I don't think the court had any dark interest when they offered this for offered this forward. It was certainly a way to keep from extraneous lawsuits from continually happening and police officers having to defend themselves individually. But I think after, you know, 50 years, 1967, we're looking more than 50 years past that decision that we have a body of evidence to look at and say, you know, this was an unintended consequence and maybe it's something that we can we can look at and, and maybe rectify this way. And as I said, there's two bills, one in each one in each chamber right now stuck in committee. So uh, something is moving. It's just how slow and that might connect to how the, the chambers operate in their own specific way. Yeah, and I imagine that a lot of the success or failure of those was probably going to be tied to the uh, upcoming election, I would imagine. It might. I mean, when you look at, um, I mean, you certainly think that, I know the House one was sponsored by um, Justin Amash from Michigan, who's the, the lone libertarian in Congress, but it's got about 20, a couple dozen, actually, uh, Democratic co-sponsors. Um, and I think there's one Republican. So, yeah, I think there might be a lot of, um, that might a lot hinge on how the uh, how the election works out, for sure. All right, well, that'll be something to keep an eye on. So thanks, Harley. Um, so let's talk to Jeremy. Jeremy, you've got an interest in the Fourth Amendment and American jurisprudence regarding the Fourth Amendment. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, about that, remind us again, what is the Fourth Amendment and, um, you know, how, why, why should we think, how should we be thinking about the Fourth Amendment in these times? Yeah. So we're going to just kind of talk about the origins of the Fourth Amendment, uh, going back to even British, I mean, during the colonial time, uh, how it's been evaluated by the courts really in, from the 1960s to 70s, the 80s and 90s, and even till now, looking at technology. So but as far as the Fourth Amendment, and I'm actually going to read exactly what it is. The Fourth Amendment is, quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause. 
supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. And the key to this, and of course, Harley obviously is the expert on this, working on law enforcement, is really a probable cause. So a probable cause is a reason based upon facts, you know, that a crime has, has been committed or, or potentially has been committed. But what's interesting about the Fourth Amendment, this is one of the most important amendments when when James Madison was working on going through, you know, one of his main jobs as uh, a member of the U.S. House and the first Congress was to, he was tasked with reviewing those constitutional amendments and he kind of weeded out the ones he didn't think were good. But anyways, the Fourth Amendment is one of the most crucial ones. And it goes back to colonial time in which, um, you know, the British soldiers, the British agents would would get what are called a writs of assistance. So a writs of assistance is kind of an old name for a search warrant. But it was, it was a very broad, you know, where nowadays when you get a search warrant, it's more specific, tells you, you know, the, what you can search for, the specific items, who you're going to search for. Well, a writs of assistance was basically a blanket sheet that said, you know, uh, and, and, it was, and in particular dealing with uh, smuggling. And uh, one of the ways that the colonists avoided being, paying revenue taxes is by snuggling products into their homes. And, you know, of course, the British agents needed to collect those taxes and they're ordered to do it. And so they would get just a blank writ of assistance of anyone else suspected of, you know, smuggling products. They could go into their home, anyone connected to them. So, again, it, it really, you know, violated what we would, what we know as the Fourth Amendment today would be a clear violation back then. And so um, but the Fourth Amendment itself, as far as protection against unreasonable search and seizure, it was something that was even recognized back in uh, Britain. Uh, there's a case, a famous case called uh, Intic versus Carrington, 1765. In this particular case, uh, some agents of the uh, Lord Halifax, who's a member of the Privy Council, had ordered these agents to go into a, to search for paperwork uh, in someone's house. And they collect everything in the house. And even the court back then ruled that that was, that was a violation of British law. And that if you're going, in order for you to search for evidence in someone's house, you must only search for the, that particular evidence listed on the actual warrant. So we can go back to even, you know, again, a lot of our laws are based on British law. But that was an example itself of a particular case. And there's actually a case back in 1603 where, and I'll actually quote this case. It's called the Samens case where the court said that, quotes, said a British case recognized, quote, that every man's house is his castle. And so if you go back, you know, over 400 years, even back in the early 1600s, they recognized that there is a sense of privacy in someone's home. Now, nowadays, we speed it up to 2000s. It's not just a home, it's your vehicle, it's technology. And technology has really pushed this into a, a different area. And so, I'm going to discuss a couple of cases dealing with technology, but if you look at actually, uh, again, I want to kind of focus on modern times because um, there, there have been different trends. Uh, from the 1960s and 1970s, the courts themselves and a lot of the cases they reviewed and you know made rulings on, they tend to focus more on limitations, uh, limitations on ex exceptions. They basically said it has to have probable cause that. Uh, we don't allow a lot of exceptions uh, outside that. You must have probable cause. And, and for example, there's a case in 1967 called U.S. versus Katz. In this particular case, an individual, uh, federal agents attached, attached an eavesdropping device 
on someone using a payphone. Of course, we don't use payphones anymore, obviously. And uh, the person was convicted. He was trying to, this is someone who is known to be a sports gambler, a legal sports gambler, and he was sending information over the telephones to different cities on betting. And federal agents caught, caught the conversations on eavesdropping without a warrant. And it went to court. He, he appealed his conviction and it went to US Supreme Court. And the question was, does the Fourth Amendment require the police to obtain a search warrant or to wiretap a payphone or a public phone? And so the court said, yes, it does, because it's still a private conversation. Uh, now we move into the 1980s, 1990s. We know what politics in the 80s and 90s, we had the war on crime, right? Tough on crime. And you saw that also that message kind of impeding into court decisions. And so we're in the 80s and 90s, um, the courts really expanded their exceptions for probable cause and what's considered reasonable. So before is a more narrow definition, but now the courts have said, well, what is really reasonable? That's really the key. Is this what a reasonable person would do? And so in several cases, a really famous case is called Horton versus California in 1990. And this is an important case. We talk about the plain view, the doctrine, and this is where that comes from, where if, uh, if something is evidence seen in plain view, uh, it can be seized without without an actual search warrant. And that is considered probable cause if that evidence is right there. So that was a very significant case. Uh, move along into, uh, there's a case, and this is an interesting one called Minnesota versus Carter, 1998. In this particular case, uh, police were, had observed, and I don't know the whole circumstances between observing them, but they noticed these uh, three people bagging cocaine through a window of a house. And uh, now the police observed it, had probable cause. Um, you know, they seized the evidence from the house to cocaine based on the cop seeing them through the window. Those three suspects were, were convicted. One of them uh, appealed it on the fact that that, doesn't, that wasn't probable cause looking through the window, that he was actually inside the house. The important thing about this court ruling is that the court said that visitors do not have the same protections as residents or overnight guests. So that was really interesting. So again, if you're a visitor at a house, you don't have the same protections as the residents themselves or even overnight guests. So I want to kind of move into the 2000s. So 2000s are really key because again, we're moving into technology. Especially when you're talking about cell phones, evidence of cell phones, GPS monitoring devices. And uh, so one of the cases is US versus Jones 2012. In this particular case, the, uh, law enforcement were investigating drug trafficking or possession of drugs in Washington, DC. And on the one of the suspects, they attached a GPS monitoring device uh, to monitor and um, the issue went to the Supreme Court. Is that constitutional? Did, did the warrantless use of a tracking device on Jones's car, Jones was the, the party in the case, to monitor his movements on public streets violate his Fourth Amendment rights? And the court said yes. And Scalia, Anthony Scalia actually uh, wrote the majority opinion on it. And uh, he held that the insulate, quote, the insulation of a GPS tracking device, device on Jones's vehicle without a warrant constituted an unlawful search under the Fourth Amendment. They rejected the, the government's argument that there was a re, there was no reasonable expectation of privacy. Because the fact that he went from place to place 
Not many had some type of sense of privacy that the government should not have been aware of. At least they should have at least attempted a warrant. And then moving along, um, again, I, I know there's a lot of cases. I just had a few more cases to kind of go over, but you'll kind of see the pattern I'm, I'm moving to. Because again, in 2000, especially 2010s, we're moving to where it's really shifted now, where the courts are now giving rights, the privacy rights back to the people when it comes to technology. You know, and if, if you recall, there's a lot of discussion about this 10 or 15 years ago, when, you know, especially with cell phones become more abundant with, with texting and stuff. And there's an issue is how there's, how are the courts going to rule on these? And so we're, we are seeing a pattern. And uh, there is a case um, in California, Riley versus California, 2014, where uh, these gang members were arrested and, uh, you know, police found evidence, guns and all that. They're charged with various crimes. And what happened is when the suspects were being arrested, of course, they had evidence, they had, you know, material on them. One of those was cell phones. So the police went through the cell phone, one of the suspect's cell phones, Riley, and they found photos and other things that linked him to a certain gang. So they used that evidence against him and some of the other parties in court, and then uh, they're convicted. But they appealed the conviction on the fact that the evidence was obtained without a search warrant. And the, and the question really is, was the evidence submitted at trial from Riley's cell phone discovered through a search that violated the Fourth Amendment? A free from a reasonable search and seizure. And, and John Roberts actually wrote the opinion. It was actually a unanimous opinion. And so he held that warrantless search exceptions, falling and arrest, they do exist, and Harley Pine knows this, they, they exist for protecting an officer's safety. But when it comes to a cell phone, it's not really protecting an officer's safety. I mean, I have a cell phone next to me right here. It doesn't cause me any danger, does it? No. And so that was really the key And that, you know, the rolling basis is like if they want to search the phone, that's fine, but they have to get a warrant first to actually search it. And that, but the fact that it wasn't a cell phone isn't going to harm an officer. There wasn't a need for the officer to go through it and start using it as evidence. And then uh, the last case is 2018 called Carpenter versus U.S. And this has to do with obtaining. Um, I guess uh, people's cell phone records. Um, anyways, uh, th there is a law uh, back in the past called the Storage Communications Act that allowed judges, with, this goes around getting a search warrant, allows the judges to get, an, if, a, you know, if a law enforcement wants to go to court and get a judge or magistrate to get an order ordering something be done, they can do that. It's kind of a back ways around getting a search warrant, which usually protects you, not always. Not always, because again, you have to have probable cause in that search warrant. It has to be sufficient. But in this case, uh, police went to court. They got an order from the judge saying they could get cell phone records for these individuals who had been investigated or the FBI had to actually handle this. Uh, there are robberies in a number of states. I think it was in the Midwest. And they actually got the order from the court. So they obtained all these cell phone records. And as we know now, right, cell phone also includes what GPS locations and all that. And so they use that evidence against them with the robberies. And so they appealed their conviction under the premise that it violated uh, the Fourth Amendment because they got this without getting a search warrant. And so the question was, does the warrantless search and seizure of cell phone records, which include the location of movements of cell phone users? Again, cell phones 20 years ago didn't have our GPS locations. But now they do. They violate the Fourth Amendment. 
And it was actually a split decision, it's five to four, but the courts did say, yes, it did. And an opinion written by Justice Roberts, he recognized that cell phone, that location information collected by cell providers, um, they chronicle everyone's really locations. If you look at, uh, you know, if someone got, if law enforcement got hold of my cell phone, they could look and see where I'm at exactly uh, with all the new apps on our cell phones. And so the courts have because, because if you think about it, it's not really, that if law enforcement was allowed to get this kind of evidence, then there's really no need to get a search warrant, right? Because it's all right there. If you need a search warrant to search someone's location, and the courts allow this, you wouldn't you wouldn't have to get a search warrant because it's all in their cell phone. Anyways, uh, that's really all I want to really talk about. Again, I want to talk, mention a little about the origins of the Fourth Amendment, uh, how it works, how is an issue during the colonial time between the colonists and the British, and then how it's really been interpreted by the courts or really over the last 50 years, 50, 60 years. And it'll be interesting to see where we go going forward the next decade or so. That's it, any questions? I did, and I, I kind of wanted to touch on the Jones case. Uh, in 2012, I was I was a homicide detective at the time, so this this impacted uh, our job. But the interesting part about this is it certainly, and this was a nine a nine o case. It was a unanimous decision that requires a search warrant for tracking devices. Uh, but their court, obviously, the court is going to do some review process. They aren't writing laws, but it doesn't prevent police officers from putting three or four unmarked units and following you around and seeing where you're going and see if you lead to evidence or co-conspirators. It just explicitly addresses the application of a tracking device. And I think that uh, I think that very much connects uh, to what was being said about um, the cell phone data and, you know, monitoring the physical physical locations. And there are very few exceptions to search warrant requirements. I think officer safety was mentioned as one. Plain view is mentioned another. Public safety kicking a door down at a house and going in because the apartment underneath is on fire or something. Uh, those types of incidents, obviously, when you're not conducting a criminal investigation. But, I mean, it's a, it's a really good survey, but I think the Supreme Court is, you know, uh, offering up mixed signals. Uh, and as far as it's rightfully, I think, in my opinion, attaching a device to a car and tracking you requires an, uh, a search warrant. But, again, uh, I can't count the number of times that we put, you know, unmarked cars and followed a suspect around to see if he led us to evidence or, you know, other co-conspirators, and that's perfectly acceptable under the Fourth Amendment, uh, at least under current jurisprudence. I, this is Bridget. I'd just like to comment on that, too, uh, Jeremy, to, uh, to your point there. You know, looking at the flip side of that, too, you know, the Bill of Rights is, you know, a document uh, you know, with amendments to the Constitution that ensures and guarantees citizens' rights. But when we flip around and we look at nations and we look, uh, you know, on a global perspective, you know, we can look through history and see the warning signs in nations that, you know, systematically began to, and bureaucratically began to dismantle these protections from certain groups of their society. And uh, one of the things 
things that I have specialized in, too, is the Armenian genocide as well as the Holocaust. And, you know, you see the Armenians back, you know, during World War One under the Ottoman Turks. We look at Adolf Hitler's Germany at that point in time with the Holocaust. And we see very quickly that there were groups in society that began to be targeted. And as American citizens, I think it's really critical that we are cognizant of the warning signs where perhaps um, there, there is a dismantling of protection for every walk of life uh, in society. And I just, you know, this just came to mind as you were talking, uh, you know, honing in on the protections in the Fourth Amendment. No, you're exactly right in that, um, you know, a lot of times we, and really talking about the origins of a bridges and the fact that, you know, today's, you know, we tend to focus on, you know, we try to focus on today's world. But you know, if we go back and do a little more research, and this is one of the things I was really, I learned a lot of research in this particular issue, and was that, gosh, we don't realize that this was an issue back then, back in the 1700s, and back even in British time back then, I mean, before the colonies, or even when the colonies were just starting, is that these are issues, whether it's the Fourth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, but these are issues that have been around for centuries and centuries. They're just, they're still in our Constitution. We're just, again, the Constitution's a living document. So, you know, through judicial review, the courts, of course, are going to look at it. They're going to interpret it differently based on today's world. Thank you, Bridget. Unless anybody has any last thoughts for Jeremy, I think we can kind of jump back to uh, uh, Michael's. So earlier, uh, Bridget was talking about the the development of the separation of powers and the three branches of government and all that. So let's let's talk for a sec about one of the branches of government. We're going to talk about Congress and specifically the the U.S. Senate within the Congress. And so, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about your work with the or your research into the U.S. Senate? You've really you've been particularly interested in the uh, filibuster. And so, can you tell us a little bit about how the filibuster developed? How is it? You know, how is the filibuster constitutional, if it is constitutional? And, uh, you know, what, what, what should we know about the, the, the filibuster? And then we can talk a bit more, a little bit more about uh, more recent attempts to uh, deal with the filibuster. So the filibuster is a tool for the minority party in the U.S. Senate to gum up legislation, essentially, or to try to block legislation from being passed. It is not in the House of Representatives, so it only exists in that one particular chamber. And as far as how it came about to the question is, well, is it constitutional? Well, it is not directly written into the Constitution. Specifically, it is written into the rules of the Senate. And in the early days of the Republic, when the House of Representatives and the Senate were just getting started, the rule books were essentially the same. And... Aaron Burr, who would, as vice president, being the president of the Senate, because it's one of those unique situations that a vice president is the head of the Senate, made the observation that the Senate is supposed to be the saucer to the hot teacup of the House of Representatives. It is supposed to be a deliberative body, and there should not be a simple majority vote approval within the U.S. Senate, within this particular chamber. And the, the delegates did agree to it, and essentially the filibuster is going to be born that way. So it's simply born out of the, the rules of the body of the Senate. 
in the real early 1800s. And next time we approach it in U.S. history is going to be during the antebellum era of the 1840s and 1850s. And this is where we really begin to see some, some serious disconnect and sectionalism between northern states and southern states over the topic of expansion of slavery. You get such things as you know, the Compromise of 1850 in American history. And that particular compromise we read in the annals of U.S. history as being filibustered or being talked to extensively. Then, of course, the Civil War happens. Then we move into post-U.S. Civil War. And because the Republican Party will be dominant for the next couple of decades afterwards, it doesn't reappear until we start to move into the latter part of the 19th century. And it becomes a frequent tool once again by the minority party to try to once again stop major reforms. And why in that latter part of the, of the 19th century going into the 20th century is the filibuster so prevalent in American history is because we go through a slew of national, municipal reforms, and the Senate was simply seen as a way of a body that was designed to slow up some of those reforms. So we begin to see a much more active filibuster. And then moving into the 20th century, uh, two very interesting filibusters in my research I found most intriguing. One was initiated by a single individual, Robert La Follette, who filibustered twice on the actions of the U.S. getting involved in the First World War under President Wilson's request for a declaration of war. And secondly, when the war was concluded and the United States was contemplating joining the League of Nations, you had the incorrigible senator, senators, as they were known, leading a filibuster to try to stop this. Post-World War I, we then see an evolution of the filibuster to start to include such things as cloture, which is we move from the single filibuster, this, the idea of one individual filibustering, to now we can simply you know, vote that filibuster down by supermajority. And as we move into, you know, get, start to get into the more modern era, we see civil rights legislation get filibustered by minority senators, I mean, by legislatively smaller states, particularly in the South, you know, filibustering the, the civil rights movement. Interestingly enough, just to dovetail into between World War I and, of course, into the civil rights movement of the 40s and 50s, you can also look to an interesting Hollywood event of the filibuster, Hollywood portrayal of the filibuster, and that is Mr. Smith goes to Washington. There's a very climactic scene where Jimmy Stewart is literally trying to talk a bill you know, to death, stop legislation from happening that he sees as problematic, and he's practically on his knees just you know, gasping for air because he's talking to a point to a point of you know exhaustion. So you know, I would encourage anyone who would like a popular, entertaining view of how a filibuster operates to, to check out that particular film. And then moving into you know the 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 era that we're in now into the 70s, 80s, 90s, the filibuster, just the mere threat of a filibuster by the U.S. Senate, it has been enough to simply stop legislation from happening. 
as we are in the current environment, the split between the filibuster is viewed through filibustering legislation, which goes, once again, all the way back to the days of Aaron Burr, and there is filibustering appointments made to the U.S. Supreme Court or presidential appointments. And I think it's important that we differentiate between the two because the legislative filibuster still remains, but in attempts to try to curtail the powers of the filibuster, we have seen both parties begin to move the, remove the idea, remove the idea officially that you cannot filibuster a an appointment to the executive branch executive branch of government. And as to the as to the U.S. Supreme Court, only just recently, just within the past few years, has decided that filibustering a a Supreme Court appointee been done away with. Now, the final leg is, of course, this legislative filibuster, and will this be done away with? We've seen talks within both political parties over the past few years, you know, open to the notion about removing the filibuster, the legislative filibuster. And, of course, once that is removed, then the rules of the U.S. Senate will become quite similar to that of the House of Representatives. And... Just to go back to this point about separation of powers, it will be interesting to see that if the filibuster is going to be removed as a tool, will we see the House of Representatives and the Senate essentially merge into one? As far as checks and balances, once that filibuster goes away, there seems to be, at least from my perspective, less of a need for the U.S. Senate. You know, we're taking one bill passing it through one chamber and then going into the second chamber. It, it would seem it would seem unnecessary, you know, in the current times that we do live. So for the filibuster, it has had a it has had an arc history. Certainly ideas, progressive ideas that had been gummed up, but eventually did come to fruition. It has been a tool used by, by the minority party. But we're beginning to see as more and more people become engaged in the in the legislative process, people have come to see the filibusters being quite, prob quite problematic. And another argument that has been made for perhaps you know, the complete removal of the filibuster is if you remove the filibuster, would that that could lead to less executive action taken by a president to try to initiate major policies. So for Constitution Day, I felt it was important that we you know, do discuss this filibuster, this tool of the U.S. Senate that is utilized by the minority party to gum up legislation. You know, is it still relevant you know, in the world we do live in? And I think that last point draws an, an interesting connection to uh, some of the other stuff we've been talking about here today with like the limits of presidential power and all of that because yeah if the Congress is gummed up because there's a filibuster on a piece of legislation or something but from a popular perspective or from the president's perspective this thing should be enacted then as we've seen over the last couple of administrations, there's there's a tendency among the the presidential administration to try to make it happen through executive order or something like that. And so we've got this dynamic where this this 
process which is limiting the I don't know if you want to say the limiting the power of the Senate, but it's at least limiting the speed of the Senate or the uh, representative nature of the Senate. Um, but that, but then it's getting picked up by the president, which is kind of enlarging the powers of the presidency in a way that a lot of the framers didn't originally see. So the the filibuster, which wasn't originally part of the Constitution or originally part of the framers' conception of the Senate, is serving a bunch of purposes that can be contradictory. And so that it will, like you said, it'll be interesting to see what happens if if the filibuster does ultimately go away completely. It hadn't really occurred to me before that doing so would basically turn the Senate into just a smaller version of the House of Representatives with longer terms. And I'm curious what the rest of the group thinks about that uh, um, that, that, that that kind of outcome of losing the filibuster. Yeah, the one of the interesting aspects about the filibuster is during the progressive era when the argument for the 17th Amendment was growing, one of the things that the progressives and, and, and like-minded uh, reformers addressed was the inefficiency of the filibuster was actually one of the talking points that you know it would get rid of the filibuster as it was this poison that needed to be gotten rid of and of course the 17th amendment's been around for a very long time and the um and, and that and that ties in to the point made about you know why need why do we need the senate at this point because it's lost its initial role as being the representative of the states at the federal government, wherein the House was the representatives of the people. Um, so Michael's got a, a valid point that it would be a duplicated entity uh, that is going to basically perform the same function as the House with no other constitutional um, kind of role to it, what it initially was designed to was to, to slow the roll. I like the Aaron Burr quote. I don't say that phrase very often, but uh, the Burr quote with the saucer and the cup is, is pretty accurate. Um, and. and a converse, an inverse argument to getting rid of the Senate is maybe getting rid of the 17th Amendment. The uh, 18th Amendment turned out not to be a great idea. Um, so maybe we can just, you know, analyze looking at that. And because I, I don't think speed and efficiency, uh, like uh, like was like Michael said, you know, it's it's not necessarily the the overall goal of having the Senate there to kind of be the bulwark against those types of. Uh, hot-headed ideas that might often vary or that might often spur up from the house uh, as representatives of the people yeah and i guess the, the other difference that i can see happening if the filibuster was to go away and the senate did remain is that the structure of the senate where you get two per state i mean that would it would provide a different constituency for the senators versus the representatives because a representative can become from a much smaller possibly much more radical little fringe area of a state or something, whereas the senator would have to represent the entire state in theory. As we know, it doesn't always work out that way, but in theory. And so I guess there would still remain some distinction there, but beyond that, though, uh, yeah, it, it feels like there really wouldn't be a whole lot of, uh, of difference there. Um, anybody else have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's there's also some structural differences between the Senate and the House that would have to change if the filibuster were to be eliminated to make it more of a smaller version of the House, the structure of the Senate with the majority leader, minority leader, unanimous consent agreements, uh, the House has a set of rules, rules committees, the calendar that's all under control of the Speaker. Uh, in the Senate, it tends to be under the control of the majority leader. So I think that, that even without the filibuster, uh, one of the possible good things that could emerge from it is that you might have more impetus for bipartisanship to occur uh, because you can't just simply, oh, we're going to filibuster this and 
will force you to get a vote of cloture in order to proceed. Uh, in order to get anything done, you're going to have to work together with people across the aisle. And I think that's that's even more true in our system because the normative way our Congress has been constructed since pretty much since Ronald Reagan became president in 1981 is we've had almost equal amounts of times divided government or and uh, unified government where uh, parties one party has controlled the House, the other party has controlled the Senate. And it tends to be flipping back and forth because we're so closely divided as a country right now. So there's no guarantee that even getting rid of the filibuster, you're going to have unified control of both chambers by the Democrats or unified control by the Republicans. You're still likely to end up with a situation where one party has the House, the other party has the Senate. And that in and of itself is a check on uh, legislative power. If you were to eliminate one of those two chambers, let's say the Senate, for whatever reason, uh, then all of a sudden you're changing the entire structure of the government. So uh, so I don't think it's as big of a fear as some people think about getting rid of the filibuster. I think there could be beneficial aspects to it that uh, might result in, like I said, more bipartisanship. And uh, I agree with the points that, that you were making about um, uh, the representation there that uh, House members tend to represent very less diverse districts, if we will, 700,000 people that tend to be very much like the people they elect. <laughs> and the Senate senators still have to represent their entire states. So having lived in, in the South like Michael, uh, I know that I've, I've lived in a, a very rural, a very red district for quite a while. But my state also had some districts that were very blue, and uh, uh, still that's the case here in Florida, where you have that, that diversity. So I think that there could be some positives that come from that as well. Actually, a student of mine brought this up to my attention about, well, if the Senate were to go, what, do we, what would happen about treaties? And to which I responded, what's interesting is we're seeing less the less treaties being created by the Senate in the modern era, and we're seeing more and more presidents you know, go at it alone in terms of formulating treaties with other nations. So that this seems to be another area of, well, we don't necessarily need the Senate for this if we can rely upon the presidency or to take over the duties, the duties of the treaty. And the Senate seems to me just, you know, begins to lose its, lose its necessity, and I think any types of push for major national reform is always seen to be how can we make it more efficient? How can we make it faster? You know, why do we have to go through through the two chambers? It's, and this is something even on a worldwide scale. There's this, at least I'm seeing this growing push toward you know singular leaders, not necessarily monarchs, but just singular leaders taking more command and less of less of a respect, less of a promotion of checks and balances on the world stage than seen over the past than you saw in the past couple of centuries. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking of this in my head and I, I think one change would be, you know, when it comes to the Senate compared to the House, um, the Senate's more known for their oratory speeches. You know, they they're also allowed to add uh, you know, non germane amendments to bills. So I think 
you know, thinking about this a little, I think that if, for example, the filibuster was removed, we you'll see the Senate shift a little more to the House where the lawmaking process will be a little more consolidated. We will see a lot more work being done in the committees and then less on the Senate floor. Okay, so does anybody have any uh, any uh, last thoughts for uh, Michael and the filibuster? Well, I think what Michael was talking about, that we've seen a, a trend of presidents going it alone more so, uh, plays into the points we were making earlier about the expansion of executive power. Uh, presidents sometimes enter into what we call executive agreements with foreign nations to uh, to enact policies, particularly foreign policy, but uh, they don't need the approval of the Senate to go ahead and do those. However, the Senate still has the power to reject that as, as, in the sense of overriding it by passing a law that would negate that. Um, if we eliminate that possibility, then it seems like we would be enhancing presidential power even more and giving the chief executive more power to act like exactly what the framers wanted to avoid, and that is a king or a monarch. So with unlimited power. Thank you for that. So thank you to uh, all of you for presenting this uh, this information here. I do have one last question that I want to throw out to the entire group. Um, just as this is a 2020 <laughs> question, we've got a um, you've got a presidential election coming up in a couple of months, obviously, um, and. 2020, the last year or so, we have seen so many constitutional issues kind of come into everyday conversations among Americans in a ways that I think probably haven't happened in a long time, especially more obscure passages from the Constitution. I mean, we've got discussions of emolument clauses in a way that we have not had probably forever. We've got discussions of Congress's um, responsibilities in administering things like the post office um, and of course we've got impeachment coming out uh, that happened uh, at the end of last year so I think one of the kind of themes in the American political sphere right now is that the Constitution is under attack by a, from a variety of directions um, and depending on your political orientation uh, your you know the direction you might be concerned with might be different I mean from a conservative perspective, you know, uh, governors ordering states to shut down their economies might be some sort of an overreach uh, because of, because due to COVID or the coronavirus. Uh, so shutting down sh shutting down economies is overreach. Or from the, you know, the left end of the political spectrum, uh, a lot of Trump's executive orders and various actions are threats to the constitutional order and the, 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 the the system that we have kind of enjoyed for 200 odd years at this point. So just the general question I'm kind of tossing out to everybody with that in mind is, you know, is the Constitution, how will the Constitution fare going forward? You know, has it been from, again, we don't need to get into partisanship necessarily, but with all of the various drags that have been put on Constitution lately, do we see, or do you guys as political scientists and historians see any type of lasting consequences of this stuff that's been going on this year, or do you see things kind of bouncing back and the Constitution being just fine going forward? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, really, th this is uh, one of those really wonderful questions, you know. And from a, a historical perspective, you know, we can travel back, you know, uh, even to 1860, the election of Abraham Lincoln. We go through his 
presidency. We all know it evolved around abolishing slavery, bringing the nation forward with industrialization, modernization, and so on and so forth. But we also see the president is shot. And so now, how were we going to deal with the freed people? How were we going to integrate people? You know, th this particular you know time frame that we're living in, I often get questions from students, um, you know, what does it resemble in history? You know, it resembles the Reconstruction era. When we look at the Reconstruction era, we were faced with similar, the topics were different, but a similar situation in that the radical wing of the Republican Party, you know, f you know, took over Reconstruction altogether. We had a, um, a president, a vice president who stepped up for Abraham Lincoln, uh, a Democratic, a Southern Democrat who, um, was in some ways favorable to the agrarian system of the South, yet he had his own agenda of reconstruct of reconstruction and you know when we come up on these hard places these roadblocks or or challenges maybe should we say as a nation America has always come through and evolved and always found a way around it you know and this is what I tell students a lot of times that you know when we're looking at these hard places I mean going back to the uh, Obama selection you know uh, even then I was asked to come up to Washington DC at the inauguration and, and and, and write about the crossroad election. Would Obama's administration, you know, change and, and, and put America on a new path of socialism was the question then. And it evolves in being the question now, you know. So from a historical perspective, you know, history does tend to repeat, but it is the inner work and how we, the people, are going to um, probably process our decisions for the election coming up that's going to be the umpire of how the nation is going to move forward, what representation we get in Congress overall in both chambers, and what the Supreme Court will look like. I think that's a valid point. I mean, Lincoln, the election, his election in 1860, um, and I think this ties into a way to do it, is that um, we've got to stop with so much. I know you said to try to avoid partisanship, but I'm certainly not blaming either party or both parties or however you want to word it. But um, Lincoln was, you know, a, a president from a new party. The Republicans had only been around for maybe 10 years or 12 years. I memory's going off of memory here. So the, the parties aren't serving up what they're doing and the parties aren't listening to the people. Then maybe there's other ways around it as opposed to having to be bogged down in the power plays of, of the parties that we're dealing with now. And I wanted to add, uh, Rob, to, to your invocation of the, um, those little small areas of the Constitution you don't hear about. We actually heard something about the Third Amendment with the uh, federal agents being uh, put into hotels out west in places like Portland and stuff like that. So, I mean, I heard I heard the Third Amendment come up, and that's not one you can you hear very often. So it's certainly an unusual time for a constitutional debate. Yeah, I would just add, I agree with um, what, both of, uh, what both Harley and Brigitte have said. And going back to Brigitte's point about the division in the country in 1860 with uh, the election of Abraham Lincoln, the secession and leading to the Civil War, I've had friends tell me today that they think we're on the verge of, of another type of Civil War because the division in the country is, we're so polarized between the blue and the red, it seems, in, in many ways. And I think that some of that is overblown because the country doesn't look like it did in 1860. The divisions then were geographic. 
between the north and the south. And today you have the blue and the red interspersed within states. And I don't see individual states ripping each other apart and people going to war against their fellow citizens within a state. Uh, the rural dwellers going against the suburbanites. I, I, I don't see that kind of thing happening today. Now, maybe call me whatever, but uh, call me an optimist if you will. But uh, I, I don't see that that's, that's a serious threat of happening today. I do think that we are facing, as um, many have said, a very critical election. And I think that how this election plays out may determine the future of one of our major political parties. Uh, and that's not to be partisan about it, but I do think that there, there are serious differences between the parties now when it comes to uh, just recognizing what facts are. <laughs> and, and that's playing out with the populace as well. So uh, I do think we're, we're facing a difficult time. The Constitution will come through it. Somehow, some way, it always has for 233 years now, and it'll survive as it always does. Uh, it just may take a lot more explaining on our part. Yes, I just wanted to say I do agree with my colleagues on on a lot, a lot of their points. I would make a couple of observations about you know, can the Constitution survive. It's enough that if the incumbent wins in 2020, this will be the first time in American history that four successive presidents have secured re-election in a row. So that means the last uh, president that only served one term, you've got to go back to 1992. So I do see that there is a continual growth of the executive branch of government, and that is spurred on by partisanship populists and the partisan populist by giving their supportive president more power. The only thing that's stopping that presidency from having more power, of course, are the restrictions put in place in the Constitution. And I would also point out that at least in protest and arguments and you know debates today, there doesn't seem to be as much of a push of reform as as much, at least in regards to major parts of the Constitution. Not so much reforms as much as it is. Well, we we need to re we need to replace it. We need to you know start you know start over. That has that used to be a small ember, but I do see it growing. You know, in the current times we live, people that. Are making arguments that high, you know, serious polarization partisans that have that are making the most noise. They don't necessarily, at least from some of the the rhetoric I have heard, don't seem to be looking at the Constitution or saying that the Constitution is the solution to a to this problem. There needs to be more. There needs to be there needs to be some more significant change. That's a good point. And just to add to what you were saying about uh, uh, the four, the, this could be the fourth time uh, a president has won two terms or the fourth consecutive time, which has never happened before in history. I'd also say that while it's a small end size from a political scientist's perspective, uh, the two previous times the president's been impeached, the other party won the presidency in the next election. So happening with uh, Andrew Johnson and then also with Bill Clinton. So. We might be seeing another precedent.
take place here. Those are all good points, and uh, I'm thank you for making those because that makes me feel better. Um, because like you, I I have many people on social media that reach out. You know, are we going? Is the country going to survive uh, 2020 if the election doesn't go the way that X group does wants it to go? And so it it, it like you all have said here, that feels very overblown and and. The country has been through worse. The Civil War, of course, is the most obvious example. <laughs> but still, it is good to hear from that from, from all of you that things things are going to be okay. Well, there's going to be some. There could be some chaos. There's going to always be debate. There's always going to be bickering and among the partisans, the part, various political parties, and all of that. But in the long term, I think the Constitution is going to be just fine because it's like you said, it's it's survived for a long time already, and I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, hopefully that summarizes everybody's views, but I want to end on that semi-positive note. <laughs> so, uh, let me, uh, so thank you all for joining me here today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for hosting this. And thank you for listening today. This episode appears on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes, and you'll continue to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this or any other podcasts, send us a message to workinghistorians at gmail.com, or through our Twitter feed at workhistorians. From Michael Gaddis, Harley Hall, Robin Mellon, Jeremy Pettigo, and Bridget Powell, I'm Rob Denning. Happy Constitution Day, everybody.